0: Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we wanna talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it's my huge pleasure to welcome to the G word today, Professor Fyodor Urnov, who is a professor of molecular and cell biology at the University of California, Berkeley and the Director of Technology and Translation at the Innovative Genomics Institute, working closely with Professor Jennifer Doudna, who of course famously won the Nobel Prize in 2020 for gene editing. And we're gonna dive into all of this, but, um, Theodore, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. So you are working right at the cutting edge of science now. Um, You're out in California, how did you get that? Just help us help us frame how young Fyodor came to uh, the University of California, Berkeley.
1: When John Lennon was asked what is the Beatles' secret, and he famously said, "If we if I if we knew, we'd form four separate bands and manage them." <laughs> I read the right book at the right time. Just like Jennifer, I was amazed to discover. I, at the age of thirteen, I read uh, Jim Watson's Double Helix. Uh, in retrospect, uh, reading it from the vantage point of today, there are a lot of things there that make me go pale with anger at some of the things he says there but it's it's impossible not to fall in love with the double helix itself the the molecule is is eternally beautiful there's there is an aesthetic to the double helix that's uh sort of self-explanatory i promptly told my uh literature professor linguist parents that i'm never following in their footsteps and that the rest of my life will be spent studying dna which is what ended up happening i i then Right place, right time is the motto on my coat of arms, even though I don't. (laughs) Studied in the USSR uh, as it was falling apart, but benefited from an amazing educational system that it had. Found myself in the States at a magnificent uh, graduate program at Brown, then a postdoctoral research fellow at the National Institutes of Health. And then again, my right place, right time was recruited by my mentor to the biotechnology sector. I didn't know what biotechnology was, to be honest with you. I thought I'd study the fundamentals of DNA for the rest of my life. And 20 years ago, found myself here in California, surrounded by uh, a bunch of folks just like me, fresh out of our PhDs. Uh, hungry to do good and completely unaware of how much we don't know that we don't know. Then over the next 15 years, rode the wave of deeper understanding into the genetic basis of human disease to build a toolbox for targeted genetic engineering, which is now, of course, what we call CRISPR gene editing. And then uh, good fortune smiled on me again when um, I was... um, humbled to be honest with you i don't really know what what word to describe it when jennifer doudna uh the scientist who together with emmanuel Charpentier, probably made the most important scientific discovery of the 21st century and i speak about all of science not just genetics uh when jennifer doudna described to me her vision for the innovative genomics institute and she described it quote as making CRISPR gene editing the standard of medical care available to all who need it and honestly uh I, I, after I reattached my lower jaw to my face, uh, <laughs> I, I, I joined immediately and uh, ever since have been working in her institute, reducing that magnificent vision to practice. So to wrap up this this, this rambling self-description, I am uh, a gene editor. And uh, uh, since you're in the UK, I have a short uh, uh, anecdote, which I suppose can set the stage for the rest of our dialogue. I was once invited to speak in England and I um, was at Oxford and I went to the Eagle and Child, which is Tolkien's pub. I, I'm a fan of The Hobbit. And I was uh, I was admiring the surroundings and the person next to me said, so what do you do? And I said, you know, I don't know how to say this. I genetically engineer people. And he said, <laughs> I beg your pardon. How can that possibly be legal? <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember thinking... Um, we have a long ways to go to, 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 to get people to understand that we're not really, you know, buildings, you know, elves. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, we're trying to help people suffering from terrible dis- disorders uh, that they were born with or that they have acquired. So, yeah, I'm a gene editor. My, my life's work uh, here with Jennifer at the Innovative Genomics Institute is to genetically engineer people using CRISPR.
0: There you go. And um, it's a it's a very well-aligned uh, mission with uh, ours here at Genomic thingdom which is to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone with um, a strong uh, focus on that final word uh, everyone. Um, so we I guess today in our operations are really about reading the genome and understanding what that can tell us about um, why someone is sick, working with the NHS and helping to try and make that better, working with researchers to try and find new things that we can do on that basis. Talk to us a little bit about how we go from reading the genome to editing it. I guess, you know, we could talk about this for five hours, but maybe the five minute version of what did Jennifer and Emmanuel, you know, win the prize for how does how does the technology sort of basically work? And um, then we can maybe go on from that to think about some of the different uh, applications in um,
1: in science and medicine. Gene editing got its name by precise analogy with word processing. and Whether you use Google Docs or Word, uh, your audience practices daily the act of opening a a piece of text in uh, in front of their eyes on the computer and then using a keyboard to write whatever they want or change the text. Gene editing is exactly that for a person's DNA, except there are only four letters on the keyboard, A, G, T, and C. There is also a backspace, and you can do uh, Control C, Control V. So you can delete text if it causes disease, and that in fact has been done in the United Kingdom using CRISPR uh, for a severe disorder of the nerves and the heart with a jawbreakingly polysyllabic name, TTR amyloidosis, and the scientists and physicians have developed a way to. Get rid of the disease causing gene using CRISPR deletions. And you can also change one letter that causes a disease, such as an immune deficiency or a disorder of the blood or a blindness. And yet again, scientists have actually done that clinically by, uh, for example, injecting CRISPR directly into the eye of, of, of folks or uh, using CRISPR to create a mutation that protects them from disorders of the blood. And then, of course, you can you know, I mentioned control C, control V, you can paste DNA. And uh, that approach is rapidly heading to the clinic as well, where uh, we can use CRISPR to give somebody a whole copy of a gene that they desperately need, for example, if, if they cannot clot their blood normally, or if they were born lacking the normal copy of a gene that helps their cells function. So I went through this um, set of specific examples about the connection between word processing and uh, helping helping human beings to really emphasize the extent to which we've gone from the realm of metaphors, you know, word processing for DNA, uh, reading the genetic code of life, to real world specifics. In the UK, Genomics England has reduced to practice the formidable technical challenge of reading the complete set of g- genetic instructions for tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. And have computer scientists and geneticists teamed up to identify which letters have gone awry to potentially cause a disease. In parallel, sort of the the word processor engineers have built a set of real world tools that have been physically injected into living human beings uh, in clinical trials in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Uh, And so far, it's looking very promising. So taking a step back Emmanuel and Jennifer closed their Nobel Prize um, uh, winning paper in 2012 with the following sentence. They said, we propose CRISPR-Cas as a system that offers considerable potential for uh, applications in treating genetic disease. And all of us in science joke that this really wins going back to the double helix, which is... uh, of course, was a model for which was proposed by Jim Watson and Francis Crick based on data they saw by Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins. And they closed their paper by saying, it hasn't escaped our notice that the structure we propose uh, describes a potential copying mechanism for the genetic material. That was an understatement. So similarly, all of us geneticists say that that Jennifer and Emmanuel's description of crispr cas as having considerable potential wins the twenty impactful understatement award in the history of biomedicine because in just under 10 years that visionary statement and the discovery they made is not just the basis of many clinical trials uh, but also a tremendous amount of progress in understanding how individual genes can cause disease and uh, advancing this understanding to not just sort of astronomy-like description of here are the stars, take a look at the sky, but really enabling spaceflight where we can travel to the stars and do, do something once we get there.
0: It's incredibly impressive, isn't it? And it also speaks to the accelerated pace of change in technology and medicine generally. I mean, w- one of the first guests we had on this podcast at the beginning of the year was Eric Toppel, who wrote his master's thesis in 1975 on the potential for uh, genomic diagnosis in humans in, um, in health and had probably a little while longer to wait um, until that was really uh, in clinical care. This seems to have moved extraordinarily rapidly from the from the lab bench to the real world. I think one of the things that lots of people I talk to about gene editing kind of struggle to understand is, okay, so we've got a human being who has a bunch of cells and in each of the cells is a copy of their DNA and then we say, we're going to edit that. Right. Okay. So we can take a little bit of that DNA out of the body. We can, as you put it sort of control C, control V, um, you know, maybe delete a bit, but that's a few cells, a few thousand cells, a few million cells out of this whole galaxy of cells that make up a human being. Uh, how does the, how do the edits kind of stick? How do we get them back in the body? How do we actually change the body on the basis of editing the the much
1: smaller number of cells that we can actually edit? First uh, I had the honor of collaborating with Eric on one of the first uh, efforts to use gene editing to both understand and plan ahead to doing something about uh, the, the the most severe genetic risk variant in the human genome for cardiovascular disease, which is an area of his medical practice. And I remember when we were teaming up, I asked Eric why he wants to do this. He said, Thierry, because I want to cut out heart disease from humanity's DNA. And I thought, that is a goal I could sign up for. And so the reason I bring this up is I don't mean to sadden your audience who would like to do that. Uh, We cannot yet edit the heart, but we can edit the liver. And in fact, again, physicians in the UK have managed to successfully genetically engineer nearly the entire liver of, of six people. And it bears saying again, six people were injected using a syringe into their bloodstream with CRISPR carried in a little droplet of fat. That CRISPR made its way to the liver, where over the next 72 hours, three days, it proceeded to get rid of a disease-causing gene in, as best as we can tell, somewhere close to 80 to 90% of the cells in an entire human liver. Then the gene editor evaporated because it was engineered to do so. Once the edit is done, it can leave. You know, the cursor of your word processor does not linger over your beautifully crafted new sentence. It goes somewhere else, and the folks, as best as we can tell, are just fine. And the reason I bring this up in the context of Eric and cutting out heart disease from the from humanity's DNA. One of the truly magnificent things about how CRISPR is being put to use clinically is by by learning, in fact, from exactly the kinds of efforts, Chris, that you at uh, Genomics England are leading, which is not just reading DNA, but understanding how genetic variation contributes to disease. And as you know, because you're literally writing that textbook in real time, some of those genetic signals cause disease, but some of them protect against it.
0: Or both at once, right? Even, even more frustrating. <laughs> you know, it's such a complicated...
1: Uh... Right, a genetic variant that protects one organ makes a different organ more susceptible. So specifically relevant to cardiovascular disease, um, earlier such efforts found a gene losing which, remarkably, doesn't cause any symptoms except it really protects against heart attack. Okay, well, the problem with that is that a a very small fraction of humans have sort of won this strange genetic lottery. Now what? Well, now CRISPR. Um, The gene functions in the liver, and I just told you that in clinical trials in the UK, the entire liver has been edited. It will not surprise you that there is a biotech company, uh, Verve Therapeutics, that uh, here in the United States, and I hope in Europe as well, has decided to use CRISPR to give people with strong genetic risk for heart disease this protective genetic variant. And this is relevant to your question about, well, how do we CRISPR people? We're not obviously going to take a person and dip them in a vat of CRISPR. We don't have to. Step one is you try to understand what, is this, what it is they're suffering from. Is it a disorder of the blood? Is it a disorder of the brain, of the liver? Wh- wh- which part genetically hurts? And I just want to be very clear there are some conditions that we know there's a strong genetic basis of. So, for example, um, a neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's dementia, where even when we know the genetic risk, and in some cases we do, we have a little bit of a ways to go before we can build a uh, a CRISPR that will really repair the mutation in enough cells to have an effect. The other, the other challenge, for example, would be cancer. You know, if you have a person succumbing to a large tumor, we can't really get CRISPR into every cell. But in those settings where we can get CRISPR into enough of the cells, it's been remarkably powerful. And two examples in the clinic are the blood, where scientists and physicians in the United States have developed a way to, as best as we can tell, genetically engineer somewhere close to 90% of the human bloodstream. The way that's done, again, I want to emphasize, this is not a you know, a blog on we are excited about the future of genome editing.com. This is uh, this is a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine describing something found on clinicaltrials.gov. 27 people have had their blood stem cells uh, safely taken out of their body, crisped to the point where all of them have now the desired genetic change, then put back in. And most remarkably, nearly two years after those cells have gone back in, they found a new home back where they began, except they, of course, now have the desired genetic change. And the people who used to have this condition called sickle cell disease or a related condition called beta thalassemia appear to be free of major disease symptoms. 27 people have been CRISPR cured using this approach. And as best as we can tell, nearly the entirety of their bloodstream has been CRISPRed. So to be clear, they are therefore what are called mosaics. What does that mean? It means that they're not genetically the same across their body. But if you're fixing a disease of the blood, you don't need to fix the eye. Or, or the skin, you just need to fix the blood, and that's what CRISPR has done. Similarly, for this genetic uh, CRISPR editing trial for uh, where you need to fix the liver, you don't need to try to fix, let's say, the musculature, although there is a disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, for which we soon hope to have a, a CRISPR uh, a gene editing trial uh, led by a company called Exonix Vertex. Um, for the disorder, disease of the liver, as I mentioned, you literally take a, some CRISPR encapsulated in a bit of lipid, you inject them into the bloodstream, and you've engineered that droplet of lipids to find its way to the liver and sort of soak itself into the liver cells and edit them. So as we, and you mentioned, I think very aptly, the way that technologies all grow in parallel, you know, I think if, you, if anyone in your audience looks at their smartphone, um, they will uh, immediately realize that the many features it provides were not developed by one group of engineers at one time. So, for example, people who built the satellites are not the people who who built the camera. But uh, you basically, in that object, you have a a constellation of many different technology development efforts. You just put them in the same box, and then you put that box into your pocket, and it's called your smartphone. Similarly, for CRISPR, um, obviously, it has to start with the efforts you're leading, which is you need to read a person's DNA, and you need to... Uh, solve the very sophisticated challenge again kudos to you for making such a magnificent progress in trying to read you know the 6.6 billion letters of uh dna and folks who don't routinely think about what it is 6.6 billion if you if you take uh, your dna and if you read it one letter a second like you go starting with the first one a g t it'll take you a century to read your entire dna Human DNA is very long, so finding that the one uh, change that causes your disease is not a trivial challenge, so congratulations. So you obviously start with reading a person's DNA, then understanding where the change is. And for disorders of the blood, the liver, the eye, soon to be, we hope, the musculature, and uh, soon to be, we hope, the lung, Uh, these are all active clinical clinical programs, Um, we can now fix it by either treating the cells outside the body and putting the cells back in, or by injecting CRISPR directly. And just to give you a sense, you know, we talk about genetic changes as driving disease. Uh, the most recent uh, entrant into the world of, uh, of CRISPR clinical trials is a very ambitious effort by a, a biotech called excision. Why did they call themselves that? Well, they want to excise HIV from the DNA of a person who has it. And your audience, of course, knows that Um, You know, we have 37 million people, at least worldwide, who have HIV. Tragically, only 7 million have access to antiretrovirals, which is a devastating disparity. Folks who have access to the medications are never rid of the virus. The virus lurks, and it lurks because it integrates itself. It insinuates itself into our DNA and just waits for a person to stop uh, taking the meds, and at which point the virus comes back in in a week. It's astonishing. So a real cure is is cutting it out. How do you do that? You guessed it, with CRISPR. How do you do that? Well, you package CRISPR inside a disabled virus. And what do I mean by that? Viruses, nobody thinks of viruses as a good thing. And in general, they're not, especially, you know, in 2021, nobody needs to be told that viruses are bad. But you can disable a virus and have it uh, carry uh, into your DNA a payload that will do something good. And again, a, a great example of this is work. That has was done by, um, in the UK and in the United States by Adrian Thrasher at University College London and Don and here at UCLA, where they used a disabled virus to bring in a normal copy of a gene that's changed in, in children born with a devastating lack of their immune system. And they treated 50 children and 50 are cured. So viruses can be incredibly powerful medicines. Think about this. 50 out of 50 children cured. Otherwise, they'd have died. So with CRISPR, what you do is you get rid of everything inside the virus and put CRISPR in, and you weaponize it to, you guessed it, cut out HIV. And so the Food and Drug Administration has uh, reviewed an application to start a clinical trial for this rather ambitious uh, mission to inject somebody with HIV with a disabled virus that has CRISPR, and the virus will home to the cells that have HIV lurking, and then cut it out. Now, let me be clear. Let's see how it works. <laughs> but I do want to emphasize the fact that this past regulatory review, and they, they, the uh, one of the many strengths of the US FDA is they have no sense it. <laughs> they are, they first, seriously, right? They take patients first and, you know, passing by their radar uh, on, you know, a, a half-baked proposition is a non-starter. And the same is true of regulators in the UK in Europe, and Europe and, you know, elsewhere. So the fact that the Food and Drug Administration of the United States reviewed this application and and the trial is about to begin really speaks volumes to the fact that the regulators in the US, in the UK, are growing more comfortable with what CRISPR has done clinically.
0: And it's, it's maybe worth just touching briefly at this point on the difference between editing someone's DNA who is already alive and in editing what we sometimes call the germline of the DNA, which means that their kids will then also have this change in their DNA. And I guess I raise it at this point because for, I guess a lot of our audience, they'll be thinking, hold on, HIV and CRISPR and, you know, there was the team in China that made the edits to the babies who were then born with the different gene in an attempt to make them um, resistant to HIV. So there's, there's this, I guess, very basic distinction between making edits to the cells, the the DNA of someone who's already alive and making changes to that person and any, any kids that they have, any kids that those kids have and so on. And ultimately potentially, you know, the whole, uh, human race just help us kind of contextualize this, like how, how should we think about the, the difference between gene therapies and kind of editing the human race, so to speak,
1: you know, I, I suppose most people uh, have fantasies about time travel. So mine, um, until three years ago, was to fly back in time to tell Rosalind Franklin and then separately Gregor Mendel that they changed the world through their science. They're both tragic- You did it. You did it. <laughs> both tragically died before they became aware of the fact that what Rosalind Franklin did to enable the discovery of the structure of DNA and what Gregor Mendel did to give us the laws of genetics really changed the world. So I said until three years ago because then something happens which makes me want to fly back to China to the lab of a person named Zhang Kuei He. And then uh, how do I put this politely? uh, Remove him from his laboratory along with all his associates before they embarked on this horrific, egregious atrocity of allegedly engineering human embryos using CRISPR to then allegedly give the world to genetically CRISPR babies. And the reason I feel so strongly about this, along with pretty much, um, if I may, uh, the rest of the scientific community who works on CRISPR, is this was atrociously unsafe, self-serving in a sort of Napoleonically hubristic sort of way, and completely medically unnecessary.
0: It's maybe unnecessary to point this out, but maybe helpful too that, that that includes the scientific consensus in China, right? This is not a uh, uh, China versus other countries thing.
1: And so the reason is the following we have just learned how to change human DNA 10 years ago. <laughs> we as a species are 200,000 years old. So gene editing to treat disease is not, it's not even in its infancy, it's like in its first minute of being born to say that we have no idea if or whether to use it to make changes to future generations that we're not ready for that would be the understatement of all time i mean this is the equivalent of taking our uh, ancestors who you know roamed neolithic europe And, you know, putting them in a Tesla. (laughs) I'm honestly at a loss for a metaphor, you know, giving them a flamethrower and saying, have a nice time. (laughs) What? I mean, fire, controlled fire can be a powerful thing, but you need to understand what it can and cannot do. So first of all, I think your audience must understand that we absolutely can put CRISPR to clinical use without touching future generations whether you edit the blood or the liver or the eye or the muscle or the lung, the first question, the Food and Drug Administration, or any regulator in Europe will ask you is, are you genetically engineering uh, what's called the germline, which is, is speak for, are you going to change a person's DNA in a way where your genetic change will be transmitted to their offspring? And if you have evidence from your studies that that is a risk, your chances of getting into the clinic are exactly zero. So a risk of germline transmission is taken so seriously by the regulators that it will make it an on-starter. So first of all, CRISPR can be used clinically, is being used clinically, without any measurable effect on future generations. Number two, across the world, legislators, scientific societies, have agreed with a pretty phenomenal level of harmony. It is not often that we, as a species, agree on something. This is, uh, you know, a, a unison that 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 would make a professional chorus proud. There is, at present, no known unmet medical need that could be served by genetically engineering the future, and if such an unmet medical need ever to come to light. It cannot be practiced unless absolutely all other medical options, whatever them and met medical need then emerges to be, have been exhausted. And I really want to emphasize, I, I, I suspect some in your audience might say, Why are you preventing me from improving my child? Well, the person who wants to improve their child because we don't know how to do that safely. And we have a responsibility before future generations to do no harm. And the risk of causing that harm are clear, have been observed in laboratory settings, and outweigh the risk of, you know, improve my baby by so many factors that no gene editor or clinician is allowed anywhere in the known world, regulated by traditional principles of medical ethics to try and do this. Am I putting a never sign over the sort of engineering future generations? Uh, I want us as a species to be the kind of species that knows how to safely and ethically, genetically engineer ourselves. Looking around the planet and looking at what's happened in the past few years, Do we have strong evidence that we as a species are smart enough to do these kinds of things? I'm not sure, with all respect to fellow human beings. I think, therefore, our number one focus has to be on using CRISPR to treat severe existing disease in adults or children whose parents can consent on their behalf. And potentially, as we know more about the technology, to prevent disease in adults and again children who have consented to this procedure when and only when we have an extended track record of it being safe and effective, we can then revisit the question of, you know, let me protect my baby from the risk of X, Y, and Z by genetically engineering it before it's born. Yeah. And and then
0: I guess there's then a, a whole open debate about not just fixing a, a known kind of glitch, like let's say sickle cell anemia, which is one letter in the, the 6.6 billion that you've um you've mentioned, no one wants to be born with sickle cell anemia, no one wants to have it as a as a child or an adult. There's then, I guess, a whole gray area where there are conditions which um some people may want to live without, other people may see as a different way of living, but not you know, a worse way of living, right? And we can think about, I guess, things like, or Aut- autism spectrum disorders, or um, manic depression, and there's all these things about you know if we didn't have people with either manic depression or autism spectrum disorders, you know the list goes on of like Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, all of these amazing <laughs> human beings, uh, Rosalind Franklin, no less, <laughs> right? Who we talked
1: about earlier. red Tumurk has spoken openly about who she sees herself as. Do we want to crisper away such human magnificence? Under no circumstances. But you make a point that I'd like to dive in. Um, deeper for just a second, and it is how we put this technology to use in the next decade. So um, Jennifer Doudna, who uh, founded the Innovative Genomics Institute, uh, receives, and she shares sometimes them with me when we were trying to actually help, hundreds of letters from individuals who say, Dear Dr. Doudna, I have condition X. Can you CRISPR me? A, a, A good fraction of those letters are from folks who, for example, suffer from mental conditions. And I do not for a second for, for a fraction of a second mean to disparage the profundity of their suffering or the extraordinary unmet medical need that there is, for example, in, in treating men, mental disease. I, I, I really want to stress to the, to the, in the strongest possible way how important and severe the unmet medical need is. When we think about, you know, a, gene- a condition to be crispr both we at the IGI and I think pretty much everybody in this space have a sort of principle of parsimony. And you mentioned sickle cell disease. For that reason, we are working on it. And in fact, we are about to start a clinical trial. We know that repairing that point mutation will treat the disease. Separately, we are partnered with um, scientists at UCSF on the Gladstone to treat a rare inborn condition of the immune system, uh, where again, we know conclusively from the type of effort that you are leading at Genomics England, that that particular human is suffering from that condition because of that single change. And then expanding this a bit further, um, we are absolutely interested in treating uh, neurodegenerative disease, such as for example, dementia, but only in settings where there's definitive genetic evidence that, you know, that particular error in that person's DNA is what is directly deriving that person's predicament. If, on the other hand, we think of somebody who has uh, a more complex mental health condition, I mean, are there genetic variants that connect to it? Yes, there are. Can, quote, mental illness run in families, unquote? Yes, it can. You know, I'll, I'll give you a specific that just affects me. I I'm a life, life, lifetime fan of Bruce Springsteen. He has written quite openly about the tragedy that his father's manic depression has created for him and his family. And he has written openly in his autobiography about his own mental illness and his lifetime of, of suffering. Is it genetic, quote unquote? I mean, I don't know, but it's yes, this can run in families. Do I see a future where something like CRISPR can be used to help folks like my idol, Bruce Springsteen? Yes. Are we there yet? Absolutely not. Is it safe to try to, quote, repair mental health in a broad sense? No. Does it create the notion that we will be trying to, quote, repair personality traits that some people define as, you know, illness and other people define as a unique property of who they are? I I am myself tormented by the fact that some of the musicians whose music I admire have put into words and music suffering that, you know, probably could have been treated. And yet here we are as uh, as a species admiring, let's say, Van Gogh's art or, you know, Springsteen's early music, which let's just say is not happy. Could that have had a genetic component? Yeah. Should we fix that? I don't know. Are we ready to make the decision? No. Does that mean we should focus on things that have, quote, simpler causes and show that CRISPR is safe and effective in those settings? Yes. Is that what we're doing? Yep.
0: Fantastic articulation. Thank you. It's a a real complex landscape, um, I guess. But I think having the clarity of let's focus on things where we understand what's going on, things we can treat, things that are you know, um, unequivocally, um, unequivocally bad. I think that that gives us a really clear you know, route through the uh, tangled landscape. So we've, we've talked a lot about the origins of CRISPR, what it means, its application in various uh, disease settings, how we can use CRISPR to Im- improve human lives by coming up with new, new therapeutics, new interventions. I would love to talk about that for another five hours if we had time. I'd, I'd love also to think about applications outside of therapeutics. And I know that the, the IGI was involved in the first waves of, of the COVID pandemic in applying CRISPR in a completely different context, I guess, like tell us a little bit about what must've been an incredibly in, intense time, those months and how the IGI was able to help the, you know, the, the efforts against COVID in, in your area.
1: Sometime midsummer, summer as the flames of the pandemic were raging across the planet, someone described work on the COVID front at the Innovative Genomics Institute as, quote, finest people in their finest hour. And I think back to those devastating times with, a, with, with, a, with an equal mix of PTSD, which is still very much with us all, and pride. Why? Mid-March, with the average time to getting a COVID test, in Berkeley, California, home to the what has recently been described by Forbes as the number one university in the world, the average time to getting a test was two weeks. Nursing home residents could not get tested. Firefighters could not get tested. Folks in socioeconomically disadvantaged communities living in congregated housing could not get tested. And into the this terrible gap, you know, frankly, stepped the United States and worldwide a community of academic scientists. And Jennifer Doudna, uh, I, I, I like to uh, compare, and I think it's an apt metaphor because I was there when it happened. The national sort of symbol of the United States is a, a gift from the people of France, which is the Statue of Liberty, uh, holding up a, a torch. Liberté et éclairant le monde, right? Liberty eliminating the world. It was so when Jennifer stood up at the meeting of the Innovative Genomics Institute on March 13 um, and said, "We have to help." It, it literally felt like she was like Lady Liberty leading leading the troops into battle, except she had a pipette in her hand, not, not, not a torch. And what did she uh, charge uh, task us and lead us into building um, a uh, a rapid, accessible, affordable, scalable uh, laboratory for uh, COVID testing, and we did that. Purely on adrenaline, um, academic spirit, Uh, you know, we always quote it, never ask for whom the bell tolls because it tolls for me, which is John Donne's immortal representation of the the fundamental unity of humankind. And CRISPR came in in a a remarkable way because uh, the classic way, and it's 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 remarkable to me that I'm going to use some technical terms and uh, your audience will know what that is. The classical way to test for the virus is called QPCR. which which was invented in uh, the early 90s. It's 30-year-old technology. It's a little bit embarrassing to be saving the world using 30-year-old technology. So Jennifer and colleagues at the IGI um, invented a CRISPR-based way to make the testing much faster. Um, I would love to give your audience a a one-hour presentation of how you can repurpose a genome editor to do diagnostics, Uh, but I worry that Uh, it will be more potent than a sleeping pill. So I will instead say this. A central feature of the power of the academic mindset is a profound curiosity and attention and um, admiration for the unexpected. The use of CRISPR as a diagnostic was a delightful, unanticipated outcome of a set of fundamental inquiries in Jennifer's lab into how CRISPR works. And as part of that query, the uh, she and colleagues discovered that CRISPR does this other thing. Again, I'm going to spare your audience's sanity, which basically has to do with it being able to recognize a very small, very, very small amount of nucleic acid in any biological specimen. And then, in one of those, aha, this is not a bug, it's a feature moments, Jennifer and colleagues then adapted CRISPR away from its initial purpose of uh, fixing disease to a diagnostic tool. And that's what we proceeded to do at the Innovative Genomics Institute where we have a a laboratory uh, that has reduced a CRISPR-based test to practice. So, I mean, I think the bigger point is, you know, the word academia is associated with the concept of ivory tower. On the UC Berkeley campus, this is particularly poignant because we have a replica of the bell tower in uh, in Venice, the, the, the Campanile. Uh, so we have uh, almost a stereotypical idea. Um, but as Jennifer's discovery at UC Berkeley of CRISPR, which has a changed the world, and uh, the more recent work at the IGI of CRISPR-based diagnostics, we should stop thinking of uh, academia as the realm of disheveled uh, scientists covered in dust in their basements, staring with fondness at some obscure problem. And has simply not tried. It's said the vision for the Innovative Genomics Institute, which is joined between UC Berkeley and UCSF, is to accelerate the path of curiosity driven discovery, such as CRISPR, or a diagnostic based on it, into the, into the real world. And I really want to emphasize where we're not alone, you know, the, the world over, um, in the UK, in Europe, in the United States, in Canada, um, this interface between academia and the world of what we call translation, which is putting things into the real world, is uh, really—it no longer looks like a like a like a wall where you have to throw things over that wall and and, and and hope that whatever you throw over the wall does not just break. But the wall has melted. The wall has really melted, and and, and it's it's an extraordinary feeling. I will. I don't think I will ever forget the moment when uh, a Berkeley firefighter. Uh, wearing full garb, full protective garb, uh, uh, came to the IGI to bring specimens to test for virus from the Berkeley Fire Department. And we got an email that said, you know, thank you, thank you for letting us, helping us be safe and helping us come back to our loved ones. Uh, and I don't really know how to explain the feeling except to say it's very motivating to keep doing that. And that, of course, is what we are about.
0: And it it, it raises, and this is probably a whole separate podcast worth of questions, but it also raises a a question around how we measure impact in research, right? There's how many nature papers have you published? You know, there's have you got tenure? There's maybe things like patents, um, but also there's I think working back from, you know, how many people have you helped and in what way, you know, we've, we've talked about spin out companies, we've talked about collaborations with biotech companies, we've talked about code bases that we can open source that other people can then um, use. It feels like there's almost all of these incredible uh, pathways of light coming out from research that we somehow need to find the right way to um, to measure. But um, if you have the answer to that, uh, please put it on the back
1: of a postcard. <laughs> uh, the only thing I will say is this. There is this word biotech, and then there's this word academia. It's fine. We have to be careful to not let our language misshape our world. There is a unified world of biomedical inquiry. It happens to be quasi-partitioned in particular ways in separate certain parts of the world. And I'm not advocating for the destruction of the current system of pharma, biotech, and academic labs, they have their strengths, but blended environments, which put to use the strengths of both worlds, are in fact growing in number, and we are building such a blended environment at the IGI. And again, we're not alone. And I really think they represent the way forward because we have, we have, we live in a world, and again, your work at Genomics England is, a, is an exemplar of that. Here you are uh, reading DNA, in partnership with the NHS. In a way where you've directly been able to impact the, 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 the health of your fellow Britons. Wow. Well, here we are at the IGI building CRISPR to treat disease. Is it an academic endeavor? Well, define academic. It's happens in academia, but we are building tools that can be used to repair a genetic change that causes a Condition that happens somewhere else on planet Earth, for example, in the United Kingdom. So uh, uh, the, the the boundaries are melting, and that's it. Yeah, it's
0: it's incredibly exciting.
1: I'm, I'm going to take this
0: liberty to say I'd love to um, try and book in a sort of a rematch in maybe uh, a year or two, or we can uh, we can pick up on where where these things have got to. But I think the the future vision that you outline around an ever increasing set of applications of this technology guided by ethics, guided by making a difference in the, the real lives of uh, real people, I think is incredibly exciting. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing and for taking the time to um, help us understand a bit more about that and, and painting this picture for us today. Really, really inspiring. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Fyodor
1: Unov. Well, and uh, thank you for the kind words. And again, uh, as a gene editor, uh, our, our our fuel, our inspiration is the outcome of work that you are leading uh, understanding the genetic basis of disease more comprehensively and getting a sense for how formidable the landscape is the work you are leading i really salute you for for the scale of the effort and how integrated it is into the a vision for a different kind of health care is what inspires us and motivates us to build a CRISPR that is scaled in its in its its versatility and uh affordability, accessibility to the sort of a vision of a 21st century medicine that uh, would be considered utopian only a few years ago and yet now we get to that as as reality. Thank you for having me. Here's to that vision. Thanks again. (laughs)
0: Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G-Word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G-Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.